Right. What's been the theme over Advent? Joy. You didn't sound too pleased about it. Anyway, it's been joy. And our working definition of joy has been a deep sense of God's goodness and blessing regardless of circumstances. So we're bringing this to an end. But just to recap, the first week we had a look at the book of Esther, we've been tracking with um, um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs' book, Morality. Um, Just in November there, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs passed away, so morality will be his last book. And it's been wonderful to um, to have that behind us, the insights um, of a Jewish rabbi just helping us through our Advent celebrations. And he talks about how Purim is not an expressive joy, he describes it. Oh, I went forward there. Not an expressive joy, but a therapeutic joy that defeats fear, and then goes on to say that that which we can laugh at cannot hold us. It's wonderful, wonderful insight. So even in, with the threat of destruction, there's joy for the Jewish people. And of course, that reflects the fact that the time, this is the time that the king who comes to rescue us has arrives in the world. This is Advent for such a time as this, that brilliant phrase from the book of Esther. We went from Esther to look at the joint books. Remember, it's the same scroll for Ezra and Nehemiah, and looking at the Word in the temple, and reflecting on the fact that as those walls were rebuilt, and as the temple was rebuilt, that the joy of the Lord is our strength, Nehemiah 8.10. There's one to remember. In the third week of Advent, we looked at how God works through family, the chosen ones, Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the last Old Testament story, Levite family. I told you that I'd taken a, um, a, an ordination service for a new minister in Musselboro whose last name was Cohen, and Cohen is a Levite name. Just a wonderful, wonderful week that. And um, the joy of being together, that that family and being together, Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, that was, it. That was week three. Then, of course, we had our nativity, which was our fourth week in Advent, always is. And we had the Sunday Club presentation. Thank you once again to everyone involved in that. It was great to see it again on the in-between Sunday between Christmas and New Year. And uh, just a wonderful reminder and the joy of preparation we looked at that day, um, preparing to receive good things. Then when Christmas Eve, we had our two services. Well, three actually, because we had two of these. And that for the chat service, the joy, um, that the God's joy becomes a baby. And that was wonderful. The watch night afterwards, uh, the, the living in the not yet now, the joy of expectation, that we, were, we have that facility in God's goodness to live in the joy of what has not yet happened. On Christmas Day, we were looking at the joy of fulfillment and uh, just celebrating in in the wonder of God's plan fulfilled in Jesus, and we reflected on the fact that joy is, in fact, a time machine. When we allow other people's joy to catch us up in in their emotion and in their memories, um, then we can be taken back to um, wonderful events in the past, and that joy is a time machine. Then, of course, after Christmas Day, Ross was talking to us about joy in times of difficulty and encouraging us to, um, to seek joy even in tough times. 
And then on Hogmanay, um, we had a look at the covenant of joy, the first part. And I was asking us, well, I was saying that our Father's plans for 2021 are we plans, that covenant is a we word, and that the, the best things, the most important things uh, in life, many of them are things that are between us. They're not just me. They're not just you. They're things that are between us. And of course, the most important things as we listen for them are the things between us and Jesus. And that's us individually and us corporately as well. So, today we come to the covenant of joy, part two. You know, part two. And I'm going to start us with this phrase. Friends, in 2021, let us be pilgrims, not tourists. I want you to have a think about the difference for a moment between a pilgrim and a tourist. So, anyone here being a tourist? Anyone here grumbled about other people being tourists? Okay, <laughs> I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. Sometimes the behavior of tourists and sunbeds and queues and things like that, we find out there's cultural differences. But a tourist is someone who decides, well, I fancy going somewhere for sun or to see things, or there's nothing wrong with a bit of tourism, but you're just a visitor, right? Okay. A pilgrimage is different, isn't it? A pilgrimage is different. You're actually choosing to go to a specific place. It might be a place of worship or a place of solitude. It might be, um, it, it might just be going on a short pilgrimage just to go for a walk to pray, but you're making that journey in a specific way so that you and God can get closer to one another, right? That's a pilgrimage. And it may well be the place of pilgrimage wasn't your choice at all, but was chosen years and years before. And some of you will have been to places like Lourdes. There's the great cathedral in Montreal, which has all those steps up to it, the Catholic cathedral, and they keep a stock of the wheelchairs and crutches of people who are healed as they go up the steps towards the cathedral. Some of you are going, that's messing with my theology. That's okay. God will do that. So, pilgrimage is very different from a, a tourist could do the same journey, and a pilgrim could do the same journey, but their attitude towards it would be entirely different. Am I right? And I want you to think about that distinction today. And God's calling us, of course, to be pilgrims, not tourists, in our life. Here's a quote from... Um, from Jonathan Sachs' book. Often, contemporary life can seem like that. We seem to be making choices all the time, but too often, their choice is not to choose, not to foreclose future options. We resist commitment. Pilgrimage takes commitment. We are in Zygmunt Bauman. There's a name. None of you thought about that for your son. Zygmunt Bauman's phrase, tourists, not pilgrims. We prioritize freedom from over freedom to. But like marriage, morality involves commitment. And of course, marriage is a covenant. And he wants to talk about how morality can be a covenant too. So we crave freedom from instead of freedom to. Freedom from work commitment, responsibilities. Freedom from the pressure to, to do things. Freedom from commitment. We crave that. Instead of the freedom to serve, the freedom to worship, the freedom to love, the freedom to lay down our life for our friends. So our choices, our choices, the way we choose 
say something profound about how we see our life. If our choices are from freedom from, then we'll tend towards I stuff, alone stuff. If we choose freedom to, it'll tend to be we stuff. And the we stuff is the stuff of covenant, and we are today talking about the joy of covenant. Right? I can see all your brains getting stretched. Good. It's good for us. Now. Jonathan Sachs reminds us that a contract is a transaction. You may have a contract between you and a company. Some of you will be in the name of a, of a contract sending back goods that didn't fit or didn't quite suit or were duplicated by another gift giver. And a covenant is a relationship. Okay? A covenant is a relationship. Just, just as a wee thought, the only kind of society that would produce something like the National Health Service or the welfare state is a, is a country that has a strong sense of obligation to each other that goes beyond contractual. After two world wars, our parents' and grandparents' generation were exhausted, and they had the Great Depression in between. And people have it tough in our day, but really, the stories from the East End of London that my grandparents could tell, or from the stories from war-torn bits of North London, there was just, there are awful things happening in our day in this country, but those were some tough days. And that arrangement that was had between um, people conscripted and serving, and there was that sense that we needed to look after people who'd been wounded by war. That only arises in a country where there's a sense of covenant one to another. It doesn't arise in a country that's just looking for fairness on a contractual basis. The country that we have, and indeed that other people want to come to, was set up on some very specific things. And that covenant of relationship of we was built on those Judeo-Christian ethics, which are the foundation for our nation and have been for hundreds of years, and which with the pressures of secularization are being eroded at the moment. That's just a wee sidebar, but I want you to understand that, that there's something profoundly Christian about the way our society is set up, that there's a covenant between us and the government and each other and the monarch. And by the way, I thought the queen knocked it out of the park with her Christmas message again this year, just saying. So, he goes on further on in the book, unlike contracts which are entered into for the sake of advantage, I benefit, you benefit, so two eyes benefit. Covenants are moral commitments stayed by, sustained by loyalty and fidelity, even when they call for sacrifice. All the parents and married folks are busy nodding away there. They are about you and I coming together to form a we, to form a covenant. So, covenant is about that arrangement between us, each other, us and God. And there's a joy in that. There's a joy in that restriction, a joy in choosing to be a pilgrim and not a tourist, to not just go through life seeing what I can get out of it or what I fancy doing or what I like or dislike, but a life of meaning and purpose that is constrained by the we of covenant. There's far more joy to be found in that 
than there is in the me first stuff. The covenant of joy, the choice to be pilgrims, not tourists, is the choice to choose. I've lost my slide here. Here it's coming back. To choose we over I. That's tough, isn't it? Think about all the difficulties we faced this year. It's been harder to be we this year in many ways, hasn't it? Just the meeting people at the shops, in the street, at the community recycling project, just that casual interaction that makes up so much of the fabric of the communities that holds us together. You know, when you go back home and you say, oh, I can't believe it, I bumped into so-and-so, I haven't seen them for a while, and I've caught up with their news, and I've shared something of my news, and there's a we about community, and that includes this church community, and friends, don't for one minute think that the lockdown has not done damage to the relationships that bind us. And it's too tempting to drift off and maybe not come in at the live stream, maybe just, you know, you just, we're going to look after ourselves, it's tempting. But pilgrims make a we choice, an us and God choice, over an I choice of where do I fancy going on my holidays, wonderful as that can be. Now, let's visit a short book in the Old Testament, the book of Jonah, four chapters long. You know the story of Jonah, don't you? The, the laugh I used to have with, um, with Peter and Elspeth was, if we don't follow God's will, uh-oh, we're going to end up as fish food. And then if we end up as fish food, we end up as fish barf as well. Just saying. If you look at the book of Jonah, it's an exercise of a choice of I over we for Jonah, who is supposed to be a Hebrew prophet. Think about this. This should be a joy-filled book. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appears to Jonah and says, off you go to Nineveh and tell them to repent, or in 30 days, their city's gone. That's his job. What does Jonah do? It should have been a joy-filled story, a Hebrew prophet bringing renewal to a pagan city. It should be a joyful thing, but instead of being a joyful thing, what does he do? He does the tourist thing and heads for Tarshish. Does anyone know where Tarshish is? Clues behind me. Spain, modern-day Spain. Jonah decides that he's going to take a trip as far away as possible. He's going to do a runner. And friends, every single one of you watching this live stream, every single one of you here, ask me how I know, because I'm me. We've done a runner. We've done a runner. We have. We've done a runner. When God has asked something of us, we've done a runner. Jonah does a runner. And you know the story the storm blows up, so as riding lights used to say, they had to get a new one. And then eventually Jonah says, no, it's probably me. I'm running from God. And over he goes into the ocean, swallowed by the whale. In the belly of the whale, he says, oh, woe is me. There's a big long psalm about it. It's a big moan. Jonah decides to be a reluctant pilgrim. He decides to be a reluctant pilgrim, but his heart's not in it. His heart's not in it. It's just not in it. Now, to be fair to Jonah, his, his misgivings were understandable. The Ninevites had a notorious reputation. Um, 
They were not kind to their enemies. You don't want me to go into the details. Those of you with smartphones can find out yourself from Wikipedia or any other reputable website that stores information about such things. But the Ninevites were notorious. And he probably feared for his life. The trouble is, is because he was a reluctant pilgrim, and he, cho- he made the tourist choice to run away and to just look after himself, and then he grumbles going into it, and he ends up saying, woe is me, instead of thanks be to God. Do you hear me? Woe is me, instead of thanks be to God. Remember there was a... Um, the Transformations video some of you would have watched way, way back in the year 2000. And there was a Colombian pastor who was gunned down in the streets of Cali during the worst of the drug cartels there. And his wife spoke about stepping towards the dead body of her husband, and she takes him up in her arms and says, it is well with my soul. all of us will face tragedy and difficulty. And all of us will be tempted in that moment, and maybe rightly so. It's very, as I was saying yesterday, it's very difficult to have the godly thoughts until we've got the ungodly thoughts out the way. But woe is me is the person who's trying to get freedom from. Thanks be to God is the pilgrim who's decided that in the restriction of God's goodness, His boundless mercy guiding us, there is freedom too, and they can say thanks be to God. So the end of the book, there's this strange sermon that Jonah preaches. I mean, it's a miserable little sermon, but as a result of it, the city of Nineveh repents. It's not destroyed. And then Jonah's more worried about his loss of reputation, goes out in a pity puddle into the desert. God gives him a plant to grow up and give him some shade because he's moaning about the sun. And you know the story. What happens to the plant? A little worm comes out, eats the plant. And Jonah, the Hebrew prophet, is more concerned about the death of a plant than the saving of the thousands of people in Nineveh. That's as far as he had gone. And instead of planting a synagogue in the renewal movement in Nineveh and bringing the love of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to those people, he's moaning about that plant. Oh, my goodness me. And we all look at Jonah and go, goodness, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) Oh, yes, we would. We would, we have, we can. Hence, I'm bringing this up. You see, in the call to be pilgrims, not tourists, we're bringing that word on epiphany. And epiphany is when we remember what? The story of the, of the, of the Magi. We think there was three of them because they brought three gifts. Because if there was five of them and they only brought three gifts, two of them were underperforming. Well, maybe the gold was expensive, all right? So, I'm going to stop tinkering with your nativity scenes and Christmas cards, and we'll just assume there were three. We know from um, the, that this happened a bit after Jesus was a toddler at this stage. 
and in come these wise men. We're going to read this account and contrast it with Jonah. Let's read this together. This is Matthew 2, reading from verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Pause. All of Jerusalem and the chief priests. Who went to see Jesus? Just the Magi. How far is it from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? About the distance from here to Edinburgh. Just saying. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Um, of course, those of you who know the story, take out the word worship and put in the word impale. There we go. Which, by the way, was one of the things the Ninevites were famous for. I said I wasn't going to go there. Now, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay. Jonah, the Hebrew prophet, doesn't come out very well on that story. And there it is in the Hebrew Bible. And at the beginning of Matthew, which is the most Hebraic of all of the Gospels, it's focused on sharing the message with the Jewish people. There is no explanation of Jewish terms, just assumes that you're going to know your Old Testament Scriptures, Matthew does. This is the story at the start. And here in Matthew's Gospel, at Epiphany, we have pagan wise men searching for the one born to be king of the Jews. Pagans. It reminds us of the story of the Good Samaritan that will come later where um, it will be equivalent of the Good Muslim. You know, people have kind of got it but not really got it and with whom we would have robust theological disagreements and important robust theological disagreements, but somehow the Good Samaritan embodied the love of God in a way that the, the scribe and the priest did not. And here, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we have this repeating theme. Here are some pagans who are looking for portents in the heavens, something which the Hebrew Scriptures say is not a good idea, and they're looking for the King of the Jews. They've come searching. They're the ones who worship. They're the ones who bring the gifts. But the current King of the Jews is a tourist. He don't really care. He is prepared to ask the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, where is the Messiah, and kill him. 
just, what? And kill him. You see, that I thing, that tourist thing, that I'm going to look after myself, I want, what he wanted freedom from was freedom from a rival. Because Herod's legitimacy did not come from the lineage of his birthright, but from the political situation with the Romans. He was afraid he was going to be overthrown. And he knew that he was unlikely to die of natural causes. And so he, Herod the Great, who I'd remind you is not the Herod of you know, the book of Acts, and you know, there's, there's a number of Herods. That Herod is a tourist. He's not a pilgrim. And yet he's the king of the Jews. And the chief priests are asked this question, and the Magi come searching, and they're supposed to be the ones. They are the ones. Remember we talked about the Simkat Torah? Where there's that prayer of Orthodox Jews for the Messiah, for the, the coming of the King. These were people who were praying for the arrival of the Messiah, and they don't even bother to go to Bethlehem. They just let these pagan travelers mosey on off on their camels. That's a tourist thing. The pilgrims were the pagans. Now, I realize I'm speaking this word into a tough situation. Was 2020 a tricky year? Tough year? We've spoken about it. It was a tough year. And it would be understandable if we were to retreat into a focus on I instead of we. If we were to retreat into the focus on I and me stuff. Just like Jonah does when he's given a tough mission. Just like terrified Herod does. Wicked ruler that he was in Jerusalem after Jesus' birth, when faced with the news that perhaps the Messiah had been born. It would be understandable, but there are many things in this life which are understandable and sinful. Do you hear me? I don't mean sinful in the sense of morally wrong. I mean sinful in its proper sense of missing the mark, of not hitting the target. That's what sin means. The, the word for sin in Greek, hamartano, it means to miss the mark. If, if your commander said, shoot that guy, and you shot the arrow and you missed, that was sin. So sin's far more to do with going off course than to do with moral purity, though it is that too. Do you hear me? And that's the thing that Jesus was able to do. That's what's remarkable about Jesus' life. But given this year, it will be understandable if we stray, if we let the I and me get the better of the covenant of we with one another and with God. Now, what I want to do now is to just take a break because, as I said earlier on, we now have a poem which mentions Gore Bridge. I think this is a moment that we, we should celebrate. But of course, as Stuart is sharing that, he's talking about the difficulties we face this year. We heard it at Hogmanay, now let's hear it again. This is Stuart Henderson reading his brand new poem, We the People. When Joel very kindly asked us to contribute to this special evening, I immediately wanted to write a poem for the occasion. The title came first, We the People, and the rest of the poem followed. Now, political buffs will 
recognise the phrase, we the people, as the introduction to the 1776 American Declaration of Independence. Some pertinent Scottish facts here. Of the 56 signatories to the original declaration, several were of Scottish descent, and two in particular, the Reverend John Witherspoon and lawyer James Wilson, were actually born in Scotland. Some latter-day historians trace the American Declaration in influence back to the Declaration of Arbroath in 1320. So here is We the People 2020, soon to be 2021. We the People. New year worn and short on revelry. So let the bells be solace, our chime of memory. We the people, gang aglay, through words we now dislike, isolation, bubble tears, unprecedented spike. We the people crave the hills, our vista circumspect, our right to roam now padlocked, our Munro bagging wrecked. We the people, detainees. What next? Walking permits, scrabbling for a gallus joke, scunnered, press ganged hermits. We the people, pray our names. Gorebridge, Arthur's seat, and Struther, Arden American. The Barras, Princess Street, we the people, motionless, whilst out at Pilrig Heights, the only thing that's active, the bleating traffic lights, we the people, greeting, the fraught, exhausted nurse, incarcerated mothers, the sparsely followed hearse, yet. We, the people, must rebound until we're right side up, awaiting spring's magnolias and summer's foxglove cup. Meanwhile, we, the people, boundless when we stand, anticipating someday our free, untainted land. Amazing. Just amazing. So what is Jesus calling us to in 2021? To be New Year worn? There's a phrase. Scunnered press gang pilgrims. I was sorry, hermits. <laughs> Scunnered press ganged hermits. Oh my goodness me. Does that describe some of the things that we've been experiencing this year? But as Stuart says, we must rebound right side up, right side up. And to take that challenge to be a pilgrim. What's God calling to us to in 2021? Individually, as families, as a church, as a community, 
what are the covenantal requests He is making of us as a we, as we willingly submit our I, our me, to His greater purposes, in which, of course, we will find joy if we're willing to follow. Joy is, with the definition we've been working with, a deep sense of God's goodness and blessing, regardless of circumstances. So, let's bring this, this series to a close. The covenant that we have with our Father in heaven, our, our one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that we are a we with Him, in Him, with each other. Our forebears have been through some dark days. Stuart was referencing the Declaration of Arbroath in 1320, the Wars of Independence in the States in the 1770s. There, there are good things come out of tough times, and our forebears have been here before through difficult days. Jeremiah, seeing his beloved Judah taken into exile, Jerusalem, destroyed. We've passed this way before this year. Listen to this promise that he hears, the covenantal promise that God will fulfill His Word to Israel. This, by the way, is fulfilled in Jesus. Let's read this together. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals… Does that remind you of lockdown? There will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom. There's that covenant language again. And the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever." For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before. Can I hear an amen? Amen. You see, the choice to be a pilgrim and not a tourist is a choice to choose limitation. And in that limitation is joy. Love is bound, friend. Love is bound. The old service, the old marriage service said, forsaking all others. It sounds like in the marriage service that that means that everybody else is thrown to the wolves. But of course, as we know, when that marriage covenant is honored and kept, that relationship produces fruit for children and friends and neighbors and enemies and communities like no other that the two together are able to produce fruit. As we know that the individual, those who are single in concert with God, can do extraordinary things and are often capable of doing things that the married couples and families cannot do, just as the married couples and families are capable of doing things that single people struggle to do. And together as church, together as church and His people called together, if we are lockstep in His will, then we pilgrim together.
We take the pilgrimage together. And in that pilgrimage, of course, there's joy. Because that's faithfulness to the covenant in which there's joy. So, okay, there, are, there is limitation in, in pilgrimage, but every step, in Jesus, every step, every choice is pilgrimage. Get, get this, every time we are found doing our Father's will, following Jesus faithfully, working in the power of the Spirit, every single time we do that, we're in pilgrimage. Our life's a pilgrimage. All of it, from nappy changing to squaring the checkbook to, to sorting out what's going to be happening next month, to planning a visit, to helping someone deal with a tragedy, all of it is pilgrimage, all of it. And if we are doing that in covenant with God, then we are doing that all in love. Now, I've just said love binds us. Love binds us. It binds us together. It, it is limiting. Think of that first commandment in the covenant with, with Israel. Love the Lord your God. Hmm? And have no other gods before me. Not life, not career, not where I live, not, 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 not any, any grand plan. First, God's will for our life. And in Jesus, all is love and all is joy. And you're saying, well, life's tough. You bet. But you've never faced a tough circumstance, nor will ever face a tough circumstance. You, are, you can't be in a tough circumstance without His presence with you if you put your trust in Him, which is the decision of a pilgrim. So regardless of circumstance, all is love, all is joy. And when we do that corporately, that's when we can love God. We love family. We love friends. And that extraordinary thing that flows out of the Judeo-Christian covenant, you read about it in Isaiah 1, our obligation to the stranger in the land, to the widow and the orphan. That is a love that could inspire a welfare state or an NHS. It's a love that could inspire an obligation to one another that goes beyond the contractual and becomes covenantal. That commitment to God and to one another is the foundation upon which we sacrifice our good for others. And we behave as as, uh, as Jonathan Sachs describes the ethic, the Judeo-Christian ethic, we behave as if we are acting for, on, for somebody else's self-interest. Even, Jesus says, we do that for our enemies. Even for our enemies. For our personal enemies and the enemies of us corporately. And when we step out into a life of pilgrimage and not tourism, when we're faithful and following God's will, that is how renewal comes. That's revival. That's renewal. 
and you can be a tourist and watch other people knocking their pan in, doing their best to follow Jesus and cheer them on, you can do that and not commit and not choose and not decide. Or at the start of this year, you can commit this year as falteringly and fleetingly as you're able to make a choice for Jesus, to make a choice to follow in His will, a choice to be a pilgrim. And yes, that's a new covenant thing, and it's an old covenant thing, but as Tom Torrance would say, there's only one covenant of grace. And this is something that in the Jesus' presence, there's joy. In Jesus' presence, as we go with Him as pilgrims, there's joy. And this is something that the psalmist knew. We've already read this from Psalm 16. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. He's saying this when the Jews had no conception about how God was going to sort out Sheol, the dark place where the dead went. Nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life, as Peter declares in Acts 2. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. We just sung it to, as, as Keith took us through Beethoven, uh, adapted. That is the promise. And of course, Jesus deals with the sin and the brokenness and the rebellion and the selfishness and the me and the I at the cross so that we can step into a covenant of pilgrimage and step into a covenant of we in order that our lives might make a concrete difference in a world that needs to see His kingdom come and His will be done. And that in His presence there's fullness of joy now. Last picture. Some of you will have noticed that it's been a rabbi that's taken us through Advent, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And as such, he recognized the rabbi that I sit under as just another rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. But my prayer is, and my hope is, that in November, when Jonathan Sachs, the faithful Jewish rabbi, went through the veil of death, and trusting that God would not let His Holy One see decay, He stepped into the presence of another Jewish rabbi in whose influence the world has been transformed and continues to be transformed and is being restored into the new creation likeness that at that final day will be gathered up because that baby born in a manger to faithful Mary and Joseph would grow up to rescue the world from sin and from death itself. And our source of joy is taking up our cross daily and following right after Him. May we pray.